Chapter One of The Descent of Man and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. The Descent of Man and Other Stories by Edith Wharton. Chapter One The Descent of Man. When Professor Linyard came back from his holiday in the Maine woods, the air of rejuvenation he brought with him was due less to the influences of the climate than to the companionship he had enjoyed on his travels. To Mrs. Linyard's observant eye he had appeared to set out alone, but an invisible traveller had in fact accompanied him, and if his heart beat high it was simply at the pitch of his adventure, for the professor had eloped with an idea. No one who has not tried the experiment can divine its exhilaration. Professor Linyard would not have changed places with any hero of romance pledged to a flesh-and-blood abduction. The most fascinating female is apt to be encumbered with luggage and scruples, to take up a good deal of room in the present, and overlap inconveniently into the future, whereas an idea can accommodate itself to a single molecule of the brain, or expand to the circumference of the horizon. The professor's companion had to the utmost this quality of adaptability. As the express train whirled him away from the somewhat inelastic circle of Mrs. Linyard's affections, his idea seemed to be sitting opposite him, and their eyes met every moment or two in a glance of joyous complicity. Yet, when a friend of the family presently joined him, and began to talk about college matters, the idea slipped out of sight in a flash, and the professor would have had no difficulty in proving that he was alone. But if, from the outset, he found his idea the most agreeable of fellow-travellers, it was only in the aromatic solitude of the woods that he tasted the full savour of his adventure. There, during those long, cool August days, lying full length on the pine-needles and gazing up into the sky, he would meet the eyes of his companion bending over him like a nearer heaven and what eyes they were, clear yet unfathomable, bubbling with inexhaustible laughter, yet drawing their freshness and sparkle from the central depths of thought. To a man who for twenty years had faced an eye reflecting the obvious with perfect accuracy, these escapes into the inscrutable had always been peculiarly inviting. But hitherto the professor's mental infidelities had been restricted by an unbroken and relentless domesticity. Now, for the first time since his marriage, chance had given him six weeks to himself, and he was coming home with his lungs full of liberty. It must not be inferred that the professor's domestic relations were defective. They were, in fact, so complete that it was almost impossible to get away from them. It is the happy husbands who are really in bondage. The little rift within the lute is often a passage to freedom. Marriage had given the professor exactly what he had sought in it, a comfortable lining to life. The impossibility of rising to sentimental crises had made him scrupulously careful not to shirk the practical obligations of the bond. He took, as it were, a sociological view of his case, and modestly regarded himself as a brick in that foundation on which the state is supposed to rest. Perhaps if Mrs. Linyard had cared about entomology, or had taken sides in the war over the transmission of acquired characteristics, he might have had a less impersonal notion of marriage. 
but he was unconscious of any deficiency in their relation, and, if consulted, would probably have declared that he didn't want any woman bothering with his beetles. His real life had always lain in the universe of thought, in that enchanted region which, to those who have lingered there, comes to have so much more colour and substance than the painted curtain hanging before it. The professor's particular veil of Maya was a narrow strip of homespun woven in a monotonous pattern, but he had only to lift it to step into an empire. This unseen universe was thronged with the most seductive shapes. The professor moved, sultan-like, through a seraglio of ideas. But of all the lovely apparitions that wove their spells about him, none had ever worn quite so persuasive an aspect as this latest favourite. For the others were mostly rather grave companions, serious-minded and elevating enough to have passed muster in a ladies' debating club. But this new fancy of the professor's was simply one embodied laugh. It was, in other words, the smile of relaxation at the end of a long day's toil, the flash of irony that the laborious mind projects irresistibly over labour conscientiously performed. The professor had always been a hard worker. If he was an indulgent friend to his ideas, he was also a stern taskmaster to them. For, in addition to their other duties, they had to support his family, to pay the butcher and baker, and provide for Jack's schooling and Millicent's dresses. The professor's household was a modest one, yet it tasked his ideas to keep it up to his wife's standards. Mrs. Linyard was not an exacting wife, and she took enough pride in her husband's attainments to pay for her honours by turning Millicent's dresses and darning Jack's socks and going to the college receptions year after year in the same black silk with its shiny seams. It consoled her to see an occasional mention of Professor Linyard's remarkable monograph on the ethical reactions of the infusoria, or an allusion to his investigations into the unconscious cerebration of the amoeba. Still, there were moments when the healthy indifference of Jack and Millicent reacted on the maternal sympathies, when Mrs. Linyard would have made her husband a railway director, if by this transformation she might have increased her boy's allowance, and given her daughter a new hat or a set of furs, such as the other girls were wearing. Of such moments of rebellion the professor himself was not wholly unconscious. He could not indeed understand why any one should want a new hat, and, as to an allowance, he had had much less money at college than Jack and had yet managed to buy a microscope and collect a few specimens, while Jack was free from such expensive tastes. But the professor did not let his want of sympathy interfere with the discharge of his paternal obligations. He worked hard to keep the wants of his family gratified, and it was precisely in the endeavour to attain this end that he at length broke down and had to cease from work altogether. To cease from work was not to cease from thought of it, and in the unwanted pause from effort the professor found himself taking a general survey of the field he had travelled. At last it was possible to lift his nose from the loom, to step a moment in front of the tapestry he had been weaving. From this first inspection of the pattern, so long wrought over from behind, it was natural to glance a little farther, and seek its reflection in the public eye. It was not indeed of his special task that he thought in this connection. He was but one of the great army of weavers at work among the threads of that cosmic woof, 
and what he sought was the general impression their labour had produced. When Professor Linyard first plied his microscope, the audience of the man of science had been composed of a few fellow-students, sympathetic or hostile, as their habits of mind predetermined, but versed in the jargon of the profession, and familiar with the point of departure. In the intervening quarter of a century, however, this little group had been swallowed up in a larger public. Every one now read scientific books, and expressed an opinion on them. The ladies and the clergy had taken them up first. Now they had passed them to the schoolroom and the kindergarten. Daily life was regulated on scientific principles. The daily papers had their scientific jottings. Nurses passed examinations in hygienic science, and babies were fed and dandled according to the new psychology. The very fact that scientific investigation still had, to some minds, a flavour of heterodoxy, gave it a perennial interest. The mob had broken down the walls of tradition to batten in the orchard of forbidden knowledge. The inaccessible goddess whom the professor had served in his youth now offered her charms in the marketplace. And yet it was not the same goddess after all, but a pseudo-science masquerading in the garb of the real divinity. This false goddess had her ritual and her literature. She had her sacred books, written by false priests, and sold by millions to the faithful. In the most successful of these works, ancient dogma and modern discovery were depicted in a close embrace under the limelights of a hazy transcendentalism, and the tableau never failed of its effect. Some of the books designed on this popular model had lately fallen into the professor's hands, and they filled him with mingled rage and hilarity. The rage soon died. He came to regard this mass of pseudo-literature as protecting the truth from desecration. But the hilarity remained, and flowed into the form of his idea. And the idea, the divine, incomparable idea, was simply that he should avenge his goddess by satirizing her false interpreters. He would write a skit on the popular scientific book. He would so heap platitude on platitude, fallacy on fallacy, false analogy on false analogy, so use his superior knowledge to abound in the sense of the ignorant, that even the gross crowd would join in the laugh against its augurs. And the laugh should be something more than the distension of mental muscles. It should be the trumpet-blast bringing down the walls of ignorance, or at least the little stone striking the giant between the eyes. Section 2 the professor, on presenting his card, had imagined that it would command prompt access to the publisher's sanctuary. But the young man who read his name was not moved to immediate action. It was clear that Professor Linyard of Hillbridge University was not a specific figure to the purveyors of popular literature. But the publisher was an old friend, and when the card had finally drifted to his office on the languid tide of routine, he came forth at once to greet his visitor. The warmth of his welcome convinced the professor that he had been right in bringing his manuscript to Ned Harvest. He and Harvest had been at Hillbridge together, and the future publisher had been one of the wildest spirits in that band of college outlaws which yearly turns out so many inoffensive citizens and kind husbands and fathers. The professor knew the taming qualities of life. He was aware that many of his most reckless comrades had been transformed into prudent capitalists or cowed wage-earners, but he was almost sure that he could count on harvest. 
so rare a sense of irony so keen a perception of relative values could hardly have been blunted even by twenty years intercourse with the obvious the publisher's appearance was a little disconcerting he looked as if he had been fattened on popular fiction and his fat was full of optimistic creases the professor seemed to see him bowing into his office a long train of spotless heroines laden with the maiden tribute of the hundred thousand volume nevertheless his welcome was reassuring he did not disown his early enormities and capped his visitors tentative allusions by such flagrant references to the past that the professor produced his manuscript without a scruple what you don't mean to say you've been doing something in our line the professor smiled you publish scientific books sometimes don't you the publisher's optimistic creases relaxed a little hm it all depends i'm afraid you're a little too scientific for us we have a big sale for scientific breakfast foods but not for the concentrated essences in your case of course i should be delighted to stretch a point but in your own interest i ought to tell you that perhaps one of the educational houses would do you better the professor leaned back still smiling luxuriously well look it over i rather think you'll take it oh we'll take it as i say but the terms might not no matter about the terms the publisher threw his head back with a laugh i had no idea that science was so profitable we find our popular novelists the hardest hands at a bargain science is disinterested the professor corrected him and i have a fancy to have you publish this thing that's immensely good of you my dear fellow of course your name goes with a certain public and i rather like the originality of our bringing out a work so out of our line i dare say it may boom us both his creases deepened at the thought and he shone encouragingly on the professor's leave-taking within a fortnight a line from harvest recalled the professor to town he had been looking forward with immense zest to this second meeting harvest's college roar was in his tympanum and he pictured himself following up the protracted chuckle which would follow his friend's progress through the manuscript he was proud of the adroitness with which he had kept his secret from harvest had maintained to the last the pretense of a serious work in order to give the keener edge to his readers enjoyment not since undergraduate days had the professor tasted such a draught of pure fun as his anticipations now poured for him this time his card brought instant admission he was bowed into the office like a successful novelist and harvest grasped him with both hands well do you mean to take it he asked with a lingering coquetry take it take it my dear fellow it's in press already you'll excuse my not waiting to consult you there will be no difficulty about terms i assure you and we had barely time to catch the autumn market my dear linyard why didn't you tell me his voice sank to a reproachful solemnity and he pushed forward his own armchair the professor dropped into it with a chuckle and missed the joy of letting you find out well it was a joy harvest held out a box of his best cigars i don't know when i've had a bigger sensation it was so deucedly unexpected and my dear fellow you've brought it so exactly to the right shop i'm glad to hear you say so said the professor modestly harvest laughed in rich appreciation i don't suppose you had a doubt of it but of course i was quite unprepared and it's so extraordinarily out of your line 
The professor took off his glasses and rubbed them with a slow smile. Would you have thought it so, at college? Harvest stared. At college? Why, you were the most iconoclastic devil! There was a perceptible pause. The professor restored his glasses and looked at his friend. Well, he said simply. Well, echoed the other, still staring. Ah, I see. You mean that that's what explains it. The swing of the pendulum and so forth. Well, I admit it's not an uncommon phenomenon. I've conformed myself, for example. Most of our crowd have, I believe. But somehow I hadn't expected it of you. The close observer might have detected a faint sadness under the official congratulation of his tone, but the professor was too amazed to have an ear for such fine shades. "'Expected it of me? Expected what of me?' he gasped. "'What in heaven do you think this thing is?' And he struck his fist on the manuscript which lay between them. Harvis had recovered his optimistic creases. He rested a benevolent eye on the document. "'Why, your apologia, your confession of faith, I should call it. You surely must have seen which way you were going. You can't have written it in your sleep.' "'Oh, no, I was wide awake enough.' said the professor faintly. "'Well, then, why are you staring at me as if I were not?' Harvis leaned forward to lay a reassuring hand on his visitor's worn coat-sleeve. "'Don't mistake me, my dear Linyard. Don't fancy there was the least unkindness in my allusion to your change of front. What is growth but the shifting of the standpoint? Why should a man be expected to look at life with the same eyes at twenty and at our age?' It never occurred to me that you could feel the least delicacy in admitting that you had come round a little, have fallen into line, so to speak. But the professor had sprung up as if to give his lungs more room to expand, and from them there issued a laugh which shook the editorial rafters. "'Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, is it really as good as that?' he gasped. Harvis had glanced instinctively toward the electric bell on his desk. It was evident that he was prepared for an emergency. "'My dear fellow,' he began in a soothing tone. "'Oh, let me have my laugh out, do,' implored the professor. "'I'll—I'll I'll quiet down in a minute. You needn't ring for the young man.' He dropped into his chair again, and grasped its arms to steady his shaking. "'This is the best laugh I've had since college,' he brought out between his paroxysms. And then suddenly he sat up with a groan. But if it's as good as that, it's a failure," he exclaimed. Harvis, stiffening a little, examined the tip of his cigar. "'My dear Linyard,' he said at length, "'I don't understand a word you're saying.' The professor succumbed to a fresh access, from the vortex of which he managed to fling out. "'But that's the very core of the joke!' Harvis looked at him resignedly. "'What is?' Why, you're not seeing, you're not understanding. Not understanding what? Why, what the book is meant to be. His laughter subsided again, and he sat gazing thoughtfully at the publisher. Unless it means, he wound up, that I've overshot the mark. If I am the mark, you certainly have, said Harvis, with a glance at the clock. The professor caught the glance and interpreted it. The book is a skit, he said, rising. The other stared. A skit? It's not serious, you mean? Not to me, but it seems you've taken it so. You never told me, began the publisher in a ruffled tone. No, I never told you, said the professor. 
Harvest sat staring at the manuscript between them. "'I don't pretend to be up in such recondite forms of humour," he said stiffly. "'Of course you address yourself to a very small class of readers.' "'Oh, infinitely small,' admitted the professor, extending his hand toward the manuscript. Harvest appeared to be pursuing his own train of thought. "'That is,' he continued, "'if you insist on an ironical interpretation.' "'If I insist on it, what do you mean?' The publisher smiled faintly. "'Well, isn't the book susceptible of another? If I read it without seeing—' "'Well,' murmured the other, fascinated, "'why shouldn't the rest of the world?' declared Harvest boldly. "'I represent the average reader. That's my business. That's what I've been training myself to do for the last twenty years.' It's a mission like another. The thing is to do it thoroughly, not to cheat and compromise. I know fellows who are publishers in business hours, and dilettantes the rest of the time. Well, they never succeed. Convictions are just as necessary in business as in religion. But that's not the point. I was going to say that if you let me handle this book as a genuine thing, I'll guarantee to make it go." The professor stood motionless, his hand still on the manuscript. A genuine thing? he echoed. A serious piece of work. The expression of your convictions. I tell you, there's nothing the public likes as much as convictions. They'll always follow a man who believes in his own ideas. And this book is just on the line of popular interest. You've got hold of a big thing. It's full of hope and enthusiasm. It's written in the religious key. There are passages in it that would do splendidly in a birthday book things that popular preachers would quote in their sermons. If you'd wanted to catch a big public, you couldn't have gone about it in a better way. The thing's perfect for my purpose. I wouldn't let you alter a word of it. It'll sell like a popular novel, if you'll let me handle it in the right way." Section 3 When the professor left Harvis's office, the manuscript remained behind him. He thought he had been taken by the huge irony of the situation by the enlarged circumference of the joke. In its original form, as Harvis had said, the book would have addressed itself to a very limited circle. Now it would include the world. The elect would understand, the crowd would not, and his work would thus serve a double purpose. And, after all, nothing was changed in the situation. Not a word of the book was to be altered. The change was merely in the publisher's point of view, and in the tip he was to give the reviewers. The professor had only to hold his tongue and look serious. These arguments found a strong reinforcement in the large premium which expressed Harvis's sense of his opportunity. As a satire, the book would have brought its author nothing. In fact, its cost would have come out of his own pocket, since, as Harvis assured him, no publisher would have risked taking it. But as a profession of faith, as the recantation of an eminent biologist, whose leanings had hitherto been supposed to be toward a cold determinism, it would bring in a steady income to author and publisher. The offer found the professor in a moment of financial perplexity. His illness, his unwanted holiday, the necessity of postponing a course of well-paid lectures, had combined to diminish his resources, and when Harvest offered him an advance of a thousand dollars, the esoteric savour of the joke became irresistible. It was still as a joke that he persisted in regarding the transaction, and though he had pledged himself not to betray the real intent of the book, he held, in petto, the notion of some day being able to take the public into his confidence. As for the initiated, they would know at once, 
and however long a face he pulled, his colleagues could see the tongue in his cheek. Meanwhile, it fortunately happened that even if the book should achieve the kind of triumph prophesied by Harvis, it would not appreciably injure its author's professional standing. Professor Linyard was known chiefly as a microscopist. On the structure and habit of a certain class of coleoptera, he was the most distinguished living authority, but none save his intimate friends knew what generalizations on the destiny of man he had drawn from these special studies. He might have published a treatise on the filioque without disturbing the confidence of those on whose approval his reputation rested, and moreover he was sustained by the thought that one glance at his book would let them into its secret. In fact, so sure was he of this, that he wondered the astute Harvis had cared to risk such speedy exposure. But Harvis had probably reflected that even in this reverberating age the opinions of the laboratory do not easily reach the street, and the professor at any rate was not bound to offer advice on this point. The determining cause of his consent was the fact that the book was already in press. The professor knew little about the workings of the press, but the phrase gave him a sense of finality, of having been caught himself in the toils of that mysterious engine. If he had had time to think the matter over, his scruples might have dragged him back, but his conscience was eased by the futility of resistance. Section 4 Mrs. Linyard did not often read the papers, and there was therefore a special significance in her approaching her husband one evening after dinner with a copy of the New York Investigator in her hand. Her expression lent solemnity to the act. Mrs. Linyard had a limited but distinctive set of expressions, and she now looked as she did when the President of the University came to dine. "'You didn't tell me of this, Samuel,' she said in a slightly tremulous voice. "'Tell you of what?' returned the Professor, reddening to the margin of his baldness. "'That you had published a book. I might never have heard of it if Mrs. Pease hadn't brought me the paper.' Her husband rubbed his eyeglasses with a groan. "'Oh, you would have heard of it,' he said gloomily. Mrs. Linyard stared. "'Did you wish to keep it from me, Samuel?' And as he made no answer, she added with irresistible pride, "'Perhaps you don't know what beautiful things have been said about it.' He took the paper with a reluctant hand. "'Has Pease been saying beautiful things about it?' "'The professor? Mrs. Pease didn't say he had mentioned it.' The author heaved a sigh of relief. His book, as Harvest had prophesied, had caught the autumn market, had caught and captured it. The publisher had conducted the campaign like an experienced strategist. He had completely surrounded the enemy. Every newspaper, every periodical, held in ambush an advertisement of the vital thing. Weeks in advance the great commander had begun to form his lines of attack. Allusions to the remarkable significance of the coming work had appeared first in the scientific and literary reviews, spreading thence to the supplements of the daily journals. Not a moment passed without a quickening touch to the public consciousness. Seventy millions of people were forced to remember at least once a day that Professor Linyard's book was on the verge of appearing. Slips emblazoned with the question, Have you read the vital thing? fell from the pages of popular novels, and whitened the floors of crowded street-cars. The query, in large lettering, assaulted the traveller at the railway bookstall, confronted him on the walls of elevated stations, and seemed, in its ascending scale, 
about to supplant the interrogations as to soap and stove polish which animate our rural scenery. On the day of publication the professor had withdrawn to his laboratory. The shriek of the advertisements was in his ears, and his one desire was to avoid all knowledge of the event they heralded. A reaction of self-consciousness had set in, and if Harvis's cheque had sufficed to buy up the first edition of The Vital Thing, the professor would gladly have devoted it to that purpose. But the sense of inevitableness gradually subdued him, and he received his wife's copy of The Investigator with a kind of impersonal curiosity. The review was a long one, full of extracts. He saw, as he glanced over them, how well they would look in a volume of Selections. The reviewer began by thanking his author for sounding with no uncertain voice that note of ringing optimism, of faith in man's destiny and the supremacy of good, which has too long been silenced by the whining chorus of a decadent nihilism. It is well, the writer continued, when such reminders come to us not from the moralist, but from the man of science when from the desiccating atmosphere of the laboratory there rises this glorious cry of faith and reconstruction. The review was minute and exhaustive. Thanks, no doubt, to Harvis's diplomacy, it had been given to the investigator's best man, and the professor was startled by the bold eye with which his emancipated fallacies confronted him. Under the reviewer's handling they made up admirably as truths, and their author began to understand Harvis's regret that they should be used for any less profitable purpose. The investigator, as Harvis phrased it, set the pace, and the other journals followed, finding it easier to let their critical man-of-all-work play a variation on the first reviewer's theme than to secure an expert to do the book afresh. But it was evident that the professor had captured his public, for all the resources of the profession could not, as Harvis gleefully pointed out, have carried the book so straight to the heart of the nation. There was something noble in the way in which Harvis belittled his own share in the achievement, and insisted on the inutility of shoving a book which had started with such headway on. "'All I ask is you to admit that I saw what would happen,' he said with a touch of professional pride. I knew you'd struck the right note. I knew they'd be quoting you from Maine to San Francisco. Good as fiction. It's better. It'll keep going longer." "'Will it?' said the professor, with a slight shudder. He was resigned to an ephemeral triumph, but the thought of the book's persistency frightened him. "'I should say so. Why, you fit in everywhere. Science, theology, natural history, and then the all-for-the-best element which is so popular just now. Why, you come right in with the How to Relax series, and they sell way up in the millions. And then the book's so full of tenderness. There were such lovely things in it about flowers and children. I didn't know an old dry-as-dust like you could have such a lot of sentiment in him. Why, I actually caught myself snivelling over that passage about the snowdrops piercing the frozen earth, and my wife was saying the other day that since she's read The Vital Thing, she begins to think you must write the What Cheer column in the Inglenook. He threw back his head with a laugh which ended in the inspired cry, And by George, sir, when the thing begins to slow off, we'll start somebody writing against it, and that will run us straight into another hundred thousand and, as earnest of this belief, he drew the professor a supplementary check. Section 5. 
Mrs. Linyard's knock cut short the importunities of the lady who had been trying to persuade the professor to be taken by flashlight at his study table for the Christmas number of the Inglenook. On this point the professor had fancied himself impregnable, but the unwanted smile with which he welcomed his wife's intrusion showed that his defences were weakening. The lady from Inglenook took the hint with professional promptness, but said brightly as she snapped the elastic around her notebook, "'I shan't let you forget me, Professor.' The groan with which he followed her retreat was interrupted by his wife's question. "'Do they pay you for these interviews, Samuel?' The Professor looked at her with sudden attention. "'Not directly,' he said, wondering at her expression. She sank down with a sigh. "'Indirectly, then?' "'What is the matter, my dear? I gave you Harvis's second cheque the other day.' Her tears arrested him. "'Don't be hard on the boy, Samuel. I really believe your success has turned his head.' "'The boy? What boy? My success? Explain yourself, Susan.' "'It's only that Jack has—has borrowed some money, which he can't repay. But you mustn't think him altogether to blame, Samuel. Since the success of your book he has been asked about so much. It's given the children quite a different position. Millicent says that wherever they go the first question asked is, are you any relation of the author of The Vital Thing? Of course we're all very proud of the book, but it entails obligations which you may not have thought of in writing it." The professor sat gazing at the letters and newspaper clippings on the study table which he had just successfully defended from the camera of the Inglenook. He took up an envelope bearing the name of a popular weekly paper. "'I don't know that the Inglenook would help much,' he said, "'but I suppose this might.' Mrs. Linyard's eyes glowed with maternal avidity. "'What is it, Samuel?' "'A series of scientific sermons for the round-the-gas-log column of the woman's world. I believe that journal has a larger circulation than any other weekly, and they pay in proportion.' He had not even asked the extent of Jack's indebtedness. It had been so easy to relieve recent domestic difficulties by the timely production of Harvis's two cheques that it now seemed natural to get Mrs. Linyard out of the room by promising further reinforcements. The professor had indignantly rejected Harvis's suggestion that he should follow up his success by a second volume on the same lines. He had sworn not to lend more than a passive support to the fraud of the vital thing, but the temptation to free himself from Mrs. Linyard prevailed over his last scruples, and within an hour he was at work on the scientific sermons. The professor was not an unkind man. He really enjoyed making his family happy, and it was his own business if his reward for doing so was that it kept them out of his way. But the success of the vital thing gave him more than this negative satisfaction. It enlarged his own existence and opened new doors into other lives. The professor, during fifty virtuous years, had been cognizant of only two types of women, the fond and foolish, whom one married, and the earnest and intellectual, whom one did not. Of the two, he infinitely preferred the former, even for conversational purposes. But as a social instrument, woman was unknown to him, and it was not till he was drawn into the world on the tide of his literary success that he discovered the deficiencies in his classification of the sex. Then he learned with astonishment of the existence of a third type, 
the woman who is fond without foolishness an intellectual without earnestness not that the professor inspired or sought to inspire sentimental emotions but he expanded in the warm atmosphere of personal interest which some of his new acquaintances contrived to create about him it was delightful to talk of serious things in a setting of frivolity and to be personal without being domestic even in this new world where all subjects were touched on lightly and emphasis was the only indelicacy the professor found himself constrained to endure an occasional reference to his book it was unpleasant at first but gradually he slipped into the habit of hearing it talked of and grew accustomed to telling pretty women just how it had first come to him meanwhile the success of the scientific sermons was facilitating his family relations his photograph in the inglenook to which the lady of the notebook had succeeded in appending a vivid interview carried his fame to circles inaccessible even to the vital thing and the professor found himself the man of the hour he soon grew used to the functions of the office and gave out hundred-dollar interviews on every subject from labor strikes to bobism with a frequency which reacted agreeably on the domestic exchequer presently his head began to figure in the advertising pages of the magazine admiring readers learned the name of the only breakfast food in use at his table of the ink with which the vital thing had been written the soap with which the author's hands were washed and the tissue builder which fortified him for further effort these confidences endeared the professor to millions of readers and his head passed in due course from the magazine and the newspaper to the biscuit tin and the chocolate box section six the professor all the while was leading a double life while the author of the vital thing reaped the fruits of popular approval the distinguished microscopist continued his laboratory work unheeded save by the few who were engaged in the same line of investigations his divided allegiance had not hitherto affected the quality of his work it seemed to him that he returned to the laboratory with greater zest after an afternoon in a drawing-room where readings from the vital thing had alternated with plantation melodies and tea he had long ceased to concern himself with what his colleagues thought of his literary career of the few whom he frequented none had referred to the vital thing and he knew enough of their lives to guess that their silence might as fairly be attributed to indifference as to disapproval they were intensely interested in the professor's views on beetles but they really cared very little what he thought of the almighty the professor entirely shared their feelings and one of his chief reasons for cultivating the success which accident had bestowed on him was that it enabled him to command a greater range of appliances for his real work he had known what it was to lack books and instruments and the vital thing was the magic wand which summoned them to his aid for some time he had been feeling his way along the edge of a discovery balancing himself with professional skill on a plank of hypothesis flung across an abyss of uncertainty the conjecture was the result of years of patient gathering of facts its corroboration would take months more of comparison and classification but at the end of the vista victory loomed the professor felt within himself that assurance of ultimate justification which to the man of science makes a lifetime seem the mere comma between premise and deduction but he had reached the point where his conjectures required formulation it was only by giving them expression 
by exposing them to the comment and criticism of his associates that he could test their final value and this inner assurance was confirmed by the only friend whose confidence he invited professor pease the husband of the lady who had opened mrs linyard's eyes to the triumph of the vital thing was the repository of her husband's scientific experiences what he thought of the vital thing had never been divulged and he was quite capable of such vast exclusions that it was quite possible that pervasive work had not yet reached him in any case it was not likely to affect his judgment of the author's professional capacity you want to put that all in a book linyard was professor pease's summing up i'm sure you've got hold of something big but to see it clearly yourself you ought to outline it for others take my advice chuck everything else and get to work to-morrow it's time you wrote a book anyhow it's time you wrote a book anyhow the words smote the professor with mingled pain and ecstasy he could have wept over their significance but his friend's other phrase reminded him with a start of harvest you have got hold of a big thing it had been the publisher's first comment on the vital thing but what a world of meaning lay between the two phrases it was the world in which the powers who fought for the professor were destined to wage their final battle and for the moment he had no doubt of the outcome the next day he went to town to see harvis he wanted to ask for an advance on the new popular edition of the vital thing he had determined to drop a course of supplementary lectures at the university and to give himself up for a year to his book to do this additional funds were necessary but thanks to the vital thing they would be forthcoming the publisher received him as cordially as usual but the response to his demand was not as prompt as his previous experience had entitled him to expect of course we'll be glad to do what we can for you linyard but the fact is we've decided to give up the idea of the new edition for the present you've given up the new edition why yes we've done pretty well by the vital thing and we're inclined to think it's your turn to do something for it now the professor looked at him blankly what can i do for it he asked what more his accent added why put a little new life in it by writing something else the secret of perpetual motion hasn't yet been discovered you know and it's one of the laws of literature that books which start with a rush are apt to slow down sooner than the crawlers we've kept the vital thing going for eighteen months but hang it it ain't so vital any more we simply couldn't see our way to a new edition oh i don't say it's dead yet but it's moribund and you're the only man who can resuscitate it the professor continued to stare i what can i do about it he stammered do why write another like it go with one better you know the trick the public isn't tired of you by any means but you want to make yourself heard again before anybody else cuts in write another book write two and we'll sell them in sets in a box the vital thing series that will take tremendously in the holidays try and let us have a new volume by october i'll be glad to give you a big advance if you'll sign a contract on that the professor sat silent there was too cruel an irony in the coincidence harvis looked up at him in surprise well what's the matter with taking my advice you're not going out of literature are you the professor rose from his chair no i'm going into it he said simply going into it i'm going to write a real book a serious one good lord most people think the vital thing serious 
Yes, but I mean something different. In your old line, beetles and so forth? Yes, said the professor solemnly. Harvis looked at him with equal gravity. Well, I'm sorry for that, he said, because it takes you out of our bailiwick. But I suppose you've made enough money out of the vital thing to permit yourself a little harmless amusement. When you want more cash, come back to us. Only don't put it off too long, or some other fellow will have stepped into your shoes. Popularity don't keep, you know, and the hotter the success, the quicker the commodity perishes. He leaned back, cheerful and sententious, delivering his axioms with conscious kindliness. The professor, who had risen and moved to the door, turned back with a wavering step. "'When did you say another volume would have to be ready?' he faltered. "'I said October, but call it a month later. You don't need any pushing nowadays.' "'And you'd have no objection to letting me have a little advance now? I need some new instruments for my real work.' Harvis extended a cordial hand. "'My dear fellow, that's talking. I'll write the cheque while you wait, and I dare say we can start up the cheap edition of The Vital Thing at the same time, if you'll pledge yourself to give us the book by November. How much?' he asked, poised above his cheque-book. In the street the professor stood staring about him, uncertain and a little dazed. "'After all, it's only putting it off for six months,' he said to himself, "'and I can do better work when I get my new instruments.' He smiled, and raised his hat to the passing Victoria of a lady in whose copy of The Vital Thing he had recently written, Labor est etiam ipsa voluptas. End of The Descent of Man